Good morning. Uh, last week, we started into this passage in which Jesus, having just fasted and wandered around the wilderness for 40 days, now finds himself in what can best be described as kind of like a showdown with the devil. Now, it's not like an actual battle fist fight. The enemy's not that foolish, but instead it's the devil trying to tempt Jesus, really in an effort to make Jesus question his identity and his purpose. And, and last week, Jamie did an awesome job unpacking not only the first temptation, which was Jesus, uh, which was the enemy tempting Jesus to turn stones into bread to satisfy his hunger, but Jamie also dug into how Jesus prepared for this time in the wilderness with the enemy that Jesus spent time with the Father, and that Jesus embraced his own identity. And this morning we're going to be taking a look at the second temptation, and we've already read it once this morning, but I'd like to read it again together. So if you have your Matthew journals or you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 5. Um, and if not, then the words will be up on the screen. And again, this is what the text says. It says, Then the devil took him to the holy city, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so just imagine this scene for a minute, if you would. Satan takes Jesus to the holy city, which is Jerusalem, which is the same place that Jesus will end up being crucified in three years, so don't miss the significance of that. Satan not only takes Jesus to the place where he's destined to be crucified, but he also takes him to the highest point of the temple. And this is significant because the temple was the place that the presence of God had confined itself to. And in those days, those who could experience the presence of the living God were limited to very, very few and everyone else had to simply hear about it from some priest. It was all this third-person relationship with God. And yet, when Jesus died on the cross, one of the things that happened was that this great curtain or this veil, which prevented people from entering into the presence of God, and this curtain was 60 feet high and 30 feet wide and around 4 inches thick. And so this is a big curtain. And this curtain tore completely into two, and the presence of God was made available to all people when Jesus died on the cross. So the symbolism of this place is so significant, and there's this layer upon layer of prophecy tied up into it, and it's all pointing ahead to what Jesus would go on to do with his death on the cross. And Satan, with this temptation, although he does not know the full extent of God's plan, he brings Jesus to this place in an effort to derail whatever plan God may have for him. And he says to Jesus, it's interesting, he says, if you are the Son of God, jump. Because the Bible says, and if you remember last week, Jesus kind of refuted the devil's first temptation by quoting Scripture, and now Satan is trying to match that same energy, and he's also quoting Scripture. And it's interesting, the Scripture that he quotes is Psalm 91. It says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot. On a stone. And what's very interesting about this passage that the devil decides to quote is that if he would have just gone one verse further into the scripture, the next verse literally says, You will tread on the lion and the adder, which is the snake, 
the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. And if you know anything about the Bible, the enemy, the devil, is often referred to as the serpent. And so this blockhead literally tries to trick Jesus into jumping off the temple with a passage that ultimately, ultimately talks about how he will be trampled and defeated. Like the irony is pretty rich. The ignorance is, is pretty palpable in this moment. And yet Jesus doesn't call him out on it, but rather Jesus quotes a different relevant scripture. Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, which is a great scripture just on face value alone. But to fully understand the depth of Jesus' response to the devil, you really have to look at the scripture he's using as a rebuttal. And the specific passage Jesus is quoting comes from the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. Now you kind of have to go one further to dig into into what God or what um, Jesus is saying and how God was tested at this place called Masada, really kind of get a sense of what Jesus is saying. I'll just give you the short kind of abridged version, but this place Masada comes out of the story of Moses and the deliverance of the people of Israel out of Egypt. So if you know that story, if you've seen the movie The Prince of Egypt, God uses Moses to deliver the people of Israel out of slavery through a sequence of warnings and plagues, eventually going so far as to tear the Red Sea apart and allowing the people of Israel to pass through safely and secure their freedom. And if you saw The Prince of Egypt, that's where the movie ends. Yay! But if you read the Bible, the story actually doesn't stop there. And God goes on to lead the people of Israel through the wilderness, and then there comes a point in Exodus chapter 17 where the people of Israel corner Moses, and they basically say, hey, we're thirsty. And we've been wandering around this desert, and we're not happy, and we're not satisfied, and God better give us some water soon, or else we are going to stone you to death. They're literally about to murder Moses over some water. And Moses says to God, what am I, what am I supposed to do with these people? And God tells Moses, hey, take your staff and strike a rock, and when you do, water will come out. And so Moses takes the staff, and he strikes the rock, and water comes out, and the Israelites drink. And they're all happy, and they believe in God again. And then eventually they get distracted by something else, and their faith fumbles, and then they come back to God again, and then they get distracted again, and then they come back to God again, and that cycle repeats itself all the way through the entire Old Testament. But after this moment when Jesus strikes the stone and the water come out, comes out, the Bible says this, and it says, And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So in the Deuteronomy passage that Jesus quotes, it basically says, hey, what you guys pulled out in the wilderness, like making all these demands of God or else you wouldn't worship him, like that's, that's not going to happen anymore. That's not going to fly anymore. And I know you might be saying, like, is it, is it really that crazy to ask God for some water? Like, is that that unreasonable? And the answer is, no, that's not crazy at all. But what is crazy is that those Israelites used to be in chains. They used to be slaves. They used to get worked from sunup, sundown, beaten from sunup to sundown. They saw their own children thrown into the river and fed to crocodiles. And then they witnessed 
God send 10 different miraculous plagues on the nation of Egypt and slowly break Pharaoh down to a place where he set them free. That was amazing. But then they witnessed the Red Sea split apart and create a perfect pathway for them to walk through. And that was amazing. And then they witnessed this massive pillar of fire and this cloud that led them through the wilderness. And that was amazing. And then God made it rain literal bread over them so they had something to eat. Like the things that they witnessed with their own eyes, the chains, they felt fall from their wrists and ankles like miracle after miracle, sign after sign. And then they get thirsty and they're ready to murder Moses and walk away if God doesn't prove himself. God, prove your God by sending water right here, right now. And it's like, actually, that is a little crazy. It's actually blasphemy, if you think about it. God brings them through everything he brought them through, and then they have the nerve to question and make demands that God has to meet on their timeline, or else they're going to walk away. It's like, human, who do you think you are? And Jesus refers back to this situation to refute the devil's schemes. And why? Well, I don't think it's for Jesus. Jesus is aware of this. And I I really don't even think it's for the devil. I More so, I think it's for us. And I think it's to remind us that God's not a part of our story. We are a part of his. Jesus, who's fully God and fully man, understands this. I, I don't have to jump off the temple and have angels rescue me at the last second to prove that God is God or to prove to me that I'm a son. Why? Because he's already proven it. And as Jesus left heaven and came to earth to put on flesh and bone to go through this life as a human being, he could have easily said, Father, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this my way. I'm going to take the path of least resistance. I want angels on my left flank and my right flank to protect me at all times. And if I happen to fall off a mountain or a tall building, I expect to be caught before my foot hits the ground. I mean, Jesus could have done that. We do that. God, I'll follow you. Just just don't take this away from me. God, God, I'll follow you. Just, Just don't ask me to stop doing this thing. God, God, I'll follow you. Just don't allow me to go through a trial Like that, God, I'll follow you if you allow me to follow you on my terms. And God says, no, it doesn't work like that. Why? Why doesn't it work like that? Why can't you just be spiritual and still just live however you want? Well, honestly, it'd be enough just to say that God is God and I'm not. And so I really don't have any business trying to take my will and like force it over top of his But on a deeper level, it's because God sees everything that I don't see. And he knows everything that I don't know. Like the things that catch me off guard, they don't don't catch God off guard. The things that throw me off, they don't throw him off. Matter of fact, things have happened in my life where I know that God knew it was coming. And so he sent people or things to me in advance to prepare me for the storm that was coming that I didn't know anything about. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, like the, the timing of things. I know people who came to know Jesus and experienced the full measure of his goodness and grace literally weeks or even days before tragedy strikes in their life. Situations where people look back and say, man, I can't imagine how things would have gone if I didn't have this community to lean on before that happened. I I don't know how things would have ended up for me if I hadn't experienced Jesus and come to know him before I went through that. 
You see, God knows. He knows. And the truth is, if he let you pull the strings, given your limited knowledge and capacity and given your selfish bend for everything to be done quickly and comfortably, that's how we're wired, you'd miss so much. You'd miss so much. The, the thing is, like, I know, I know that the easy way, like the comfortable way, is rarely, if ever, the best way. I know that. You know that. But when I'm tired, or I'm emotional, or I'm caught up in the moment, I'll take the easy way, even if it means I miss out on something life-changing. I'll take the easy way. I'll take the path of least resistance, because I don't have the foresight to do what's best for me. It's why it's so crazy to me when I hear people say, the only person I trust is me. Really? Because I don't really trust me at all. I, I know me. I know how fickle and fragile I am. I know how my pride and my ego influence decisions I make. I know the brokenness inside of me. And so the truth is, I don't need God to bend to my will. I don't need him to prove himself to me on my terms. I don't need God to get with my program. I need to get with his program. And I need to let my mess go. And God gives us everything we need, sometimes more than we need, but never less. And as we stumble through this life, he invites us to lean in and lean on him to guide us through the unknown. That's why it says in Psalm 119, it says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You, you hear that? A lamp. You know what a lamp does? Let's see what a lamp does. Let's really see what a lamp does. You want to turn the lights off? What's a lamp do? You see, a lamp gives you just enough light, right? It gives you just enough light to stay on the path. No more, no less. And it's kind of beautiful because you have to stay anchored to this lamp because if you put it down, you only have to take a couple steps away and then you're standing completely in the dark again. And so you have to stay anchored to this lamp and it's this beautiful illustration because it's exactly how our relationship with God is. God gives us what we need. No more, no less. He gives us everything that we need. And if we stay anchored to him, he will guide us through the unknown. And man, it's uncomfortable. And it takes trust, and it takes faith. And the truth is, we hate it. We hate it so much. Because we don't want to depend on God. We don't really want to depend on God. We want to depend on ourselves. And we don't want a lamp. We want a flashlight. God, if I could just see what's coming. God, if I just knew how this played out, then I would trust you. But that's not trust. God, if I could just throw myself off of this temple and you catch me and prove to me that you're God, then I would trust you. That's not trust. And that's not a lamp. That's a flashlight. 
Imagine this. Imagine God comes to me eight years ago, and he says, something's about to happen, and uh, it's going to change the spiritual landscape of your family. You are going to go into deeper relationship with me than you even knew was possible. Your prayer life with me is about to change so much. You are about to get so comfortable coming to me and falling on your knees and crying out to me. Me and you are about to get really close. You are about to experience my presence in ways you have never experienced in your life. Matter of fact, I'm about to give you more proof of my existence than you have ever experienced in your life, more proof than you will ever need for the rest of your life. And you know what I would have said? I would have said, yes, yes. This is what I've been waiting for, God. This is what I've been praying for, to go into deeper relationship with you, that your love and your presence and your goodness would just shower over our family and we would experience you in a way that we never had before. I'm all in. But then imagine God handing me a flashlight and I turn it on and he says, oh, by the way, the path to get there includes your mom getting diagnosed with and dying of pancreatic cancer. And you know what I would have said? I would have said, no thanks. I would have said, I'm good on that. I would have said, I don't need to go into deeper relationship with you. I don't need a richer prayer life. I don't need a richer worship life. I don't need to experience your presence in ways that I never had before. I don't need proof of your existence. If that's the catalyst that it's going to take to get our family there, I'm out. That's the truth. Even knowing what I know now, I don't know how I would respond. But you see, God knew. God knew, and am I saying that God gave my mom cancer so that our family could go into deeper relationship with him? No, I know that that's not what happened. I think it's something that just happened probably because my mom started smoking in her early teens. It happened because of decisions that she made. But you see, God knew. And God took that desolate situation and he said, you're about to walk through something dark, but if you just stay anchored to me, everything is going to be all right. And can I tell you something? My mom getting diagnosed with cancer did change the spiritual landscape of our family. My relationship with God has never been the same since the moment I first got that phone call that they found a mass on her pancreas. Everything turned up to 10, not just for me, but across the board in our family, my mom included. Things have never been the same. I feel more comfortable approaching God from that moment than I ever had. God's goodness washed over our family. He proved his faithfulness to us time and time again. Even when he brought my mom home, we trusted him. We knew that everything was under control. And he said, if you just stay anchored to me, I got you. And I could speak at length about that situation, but this isn't about me. And you've got your own story. And it may involve cancer or it may not, but the truth is we all go through it. And those rough moments, those dark moments where you have to stay anchored to this lamp, those are the most refining moments in your life, in your walk with God. They refine you as a person more than anything else. And guess what? If you had a flashlight, you'd skip all of them. You'd skip all of them. You can turn the light back on. That's one way to read this. Satan tempting us. You can throw yourself off the temple. Make God prove himself 
to you, make him show you everything, and then you can trust him. The other way you can read this temptation is Satan saying, hey, jump from the temple. Live for yourself. Live for yourself. Indulge yourself. You don't have to stay anchored to this temple. You don't have to stay anchored to God. You can do whatever you want, and God will save you either way. right? A loving God wouldn't let you crash headlong into those stones, would he? Surely you've heard this. A loving God wouldn't allow people to go to hell. A loving God wouldn't allow people to be swallowed up in darkness. Or or what about this? As as long as someone believes in something, that's enough, right? As long as they believe in something. The age-old perspective. I I, want to be spiritual, but I don't really want to submit to anything other than myself. And if that's you, and, and if you're in that place of, man, God just wants me to be happy. God just wants me to enjoy myself, and it, it's not a big deal. I should be able to live however I want and have God still save me. I really just have to ask, like, is, is that freedom? Is that really freedom, being able to do whatever you want? You know what I've never heard? I've started putting myself above everyone else, and it's doing wonders for my social life. People can't get enough of me and my self-first attitude. They love it. You know what I've never heard? My porn addiction is really doing wonders for my relationship with my spouse. They love how caught up in it. They love how cut up I am in it. They love how trapped I am in it. They can't get enough of it. They love it. You know what I've never heard? Man, I started drinking a lot more. And not only do I physically feel great, but my kids respect me more. I found that to be the case. You know what I've never heard? I'm so glad that I sowed my wild oats when I was young and slept with so many people and blacked out over and over again. Those were the best days of my life. I don't regret that at all. Doing what you want, that's not freedom. That's a lie. Living the lifestyle that the world sells, that's not freedom. I I don't know if you've noticed, the world is not happy. I I have a rule of life that I follow. If someone's trying to give me advice about something, I look at their life, and if I admire their life and want a life that looks like theirs, I'll heed their advice. If I have no interest in their life, then their advice means nothing to me. So I look at the world, and I don't want that life. You're not happy. You're not fulfilled. You don't have peace. You just chase and chase and run around in circles and feel stressed and broken and angry and and resentful all the time like world Why would I ever take advice from you about how to live? It's a lie. It's a trap. The truth is, freedom is stepping away from those lies and those chains and embracing the life that God desires for me. God's way is freedom. It always has been. Look at Jesus. Jesus had peace. Jesus had confidence. He expressed Love, he embraced outcasts, he called out hypocrisy and imbalances of power. He made people a priority. He sacrificed everything for those that he loved. That is the life that I want. That is freedom. And if you said yes to Jesus, the spirit of the living God lives inside of you. You don't have to be a slave to sin. You don't have to be a victim of a broken lifestyle. 
You don't have to make fickle and finite decisions and live your life based on your fleeting human emotion. That's what the rest of the world does, and you have been set free from that if you put your faith in Jesus. That's not you. The chains have been broken. But you see, we forget that. The enemy lulls us into sleep. He fools us into thinking, well, I'll just always be this way. I'll always deal with this sin. This will just be a thorn in my spirit for the rest of my life. This side of heaven, there's not really anything I can do about it. I'll never not drink to numb the pain. I'll never stop watching porn. I'll never get past my self-hatred. I'll never be free from this. And I'll continue to throw myself off the temple time and time again and just hope that God's grace is big enough to save me by some miracle, whether I actually follow him or not. I just hope that by some miracle, even if I don't apply a single measure of his teachings in my life, even if I spend no time with him, I'll just hope that I can still experience the fullness of God. But here's the truth. No, you won't. You can't. Is God's grace big enough to cover your sin? Absolutely. Is there any sin that cannot be washed away? No. His blood, his grace is sufficient for you. But can you experience freedom from that sin without ever laying it down at the feet of Jesus? No. It's only him. All life, all forgiveness, all freedom is found in him and nowhere else. But you see, here's where we get confused. We think that we're meant to fight against the temptation and brokenness in our life with our own willpower, our own discipline. Yes, Jesus died on a cross to give me a head start, but now that I've been forgiven, it's time for me to face down my demons in a way that makes Jesus proud. That's like walking through a barren desert, like dying of thirst, dehydrated, wasting away, only to find a spring of perfectly clean and cool water. But you see, instead of drinking it and soaking it and staying in it, you take one sip and then you walk away and live the rest of your life trying to survive by swallowing your own spit. That's how useful and helpful your discipline is. It's like swallowing your own spit in the, de in the desert. It'll never be enough. It'll never sustain you. And you were never called to live that way. Again, the spirit of the living God resides in your heart. Do you call on him when temptation comes? I mean, I know it feels like an awkward time to pray when you're about to settle into some sin that you know isn't for you. I know it's awkward. I know you want to hide in the dark, but what if you just invited him in? What if before you pulled the trigger on that double shot of whiskey or that bottle of wine or that late night text or that website that you shouldn't be on or your mindless scrolling on your phone? What if before you did that, what if before you reduced yourself to that again, what if you just prayed? Or what if you turned on a worship song and let it ring through the halls of your house or in your car? What if you resisted? And not to impress or earn anything from God, but because you want to experience his freedom and his fullness in your life and because you're tired of settling for crumbs and table scraps that can't fully sustain you, you're tired of dying in the desert trying to survive on your own spit. The great theologian Martin Luther was once asked how he dealt with the assaults of the devil. And he said, well, when the devil comes knocking upon the door of my heart, and asks, who lives here? The dear Lord Jesus goes to the door and says, Martin Luther used to live here, but he's moved out. Now I live here. And the devil, seeing the nail prints in his hands and the pierced side, takes flight immediately. And you see, that's the picture. 
our family, when we first moved into our house, we used to get a lot of solicitors, a lot of people knocking on our door, selling all kinds of things that we didn't need. And my wife, Georgiana, bless her heart, is very kind. And she would open the door and often find herself trapped in conversations with these people. And me, well, that's, let's just say that's not me. My tolerance and bandwidth for those conversations is not very high. I'll say no thank you, and then you're free to keep talking, but I'll close the door in your face. Mid-sentence. Don't care. Said no. I can say no thanks easily enough. And, and we've learned that when solicitors come knocking, it's better if I open the door. And Martin Luther is emphasizing that when the devil comes knocking, it's better if Jesus opens the door. Because you and I, we will entertain the conversation, we'll be polite, and eventually we'll find ourselves buying into things that are not for us. But you see, when we call on Jesus, the devil knows what time it is. For Jesus is equipped to do what we cannot do. Jesus can face down the temptation. He can call out the lies. He can Guard your heart if you turn to him, and you should turn to him. Because here's the crazy part. Jesus did have a flashlight. He knew what was waiting for him in Jerusalem. Now, to what degree did he know? We can't say for sure. But he knew the prophecies, and he knew that he would suffer immensely. I imagine the father approaching the son and saying it. We're going to change the spiritual landscape of the world. And people are going to be able to experience the presence of God in ways they never had before. They're going to be able to experience freedom from their sin and their shame and their brokenness. And it is going to be amazing. And Jesus says, I'm in. And God says, but it's, it's going to cost you your life. It's going to cost you your blood. And Jesus says, I'm in. What's so mind-blowing to me is that these words that Satan speaks to Jesus as he stands on top of the temple in Jerusalem are the same words the people scream at Jesus three years later as he's hanging and dying on a cross. Satan says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Three years later, beaten, bleeding, publicly mocked and humiliated, dying, the people scream at Jesus, well then, if you are the son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross. And could Jesus have come down from the cross? No doubt. Legions of angels could have come down and killed every Roman soldier for miles. Jesus could have taken the shortcut. He could have taken the path of least resistance, but he didn't because that would have meant abandoning you in the process, and you are not abandoned. You're not destroyed. Because our Savior didn't come down from the cross, he gave everything and he endured something. He endured something he didn't deserve so that I could experience something I will never deserve. Life with him. Listen, this is not a do better or be better message. This is not a get your life together message. The message is simple. Anchor yourself to the light. Set your eyes on Jesus. He makes crooked paths straight. He drives out darkness. He brings light. Darkness is all around. You see it. You feel it looming. But Jesus is our lamp. And if we stay anchored to him, he's going to guide us home. 
Let's pray. Lord, we love you, and we need you. Times are dark. We're only getting darker. We seem to be surrounded by hurt, stress, fear, pain, endless list of brokenness on all sides of us. God, I pray that we are not tempted to step away from your light and try to do this on our own. I pray that we stay anchored to you. And I pray that we get real comfortable not needing to know the answers, not needing to know all of the outcomes, but knowing that because it's you who's guiding us, that wherever that path leads, we can trust it. We can experience your goodness and your grace along the way, Lord. We don't have to settle for brokenness. We don't have to settle for our own spit as we die in the desert. We can rest in you, Lord. And your word says that those who trust in you, God, that, that you become a spring of living water inside of us. So much that not even just are we quenched, but those around us get to experience your presence and your love and your goodness. God, I pray that the words of this scripture just stick with us. God, I pray that this image of the lamp and staying anchored to you sticks with us as we walk out of this place. And that as a community, that is our identity. We're desperate, we're broken, we're hurting. But in the dark, we stay anchored to you like our life depends on it. And I pray that the world sees that and sees the hope and life that it brings. Jesus, we pray all these things in your name. We love you and praise you. Amen.